Hello, and welcome to MedEd Thread, a Cleveland Clinic Education Institute podcast that explores the latest innovations in medical education and amplifies the tremendous work of our educators across the enterprise. Hi, welcome to today's episode of MedEd Thread. I am your host, Dr. Tony Tizano, Director of Student and Learner Health and Assistant Clinical Professor of Surgery here at Cleveland Clinic in Cleveland, Ohio. Today, I am very pleased to have Christine Warren, Associate Dean of Admissions and Student Affairs at the Cleveland Clinic Lerner College of Medicine of Case Western Reserve University and Associate Professor of Dermatology, along with Dr. Robert Wilson, Chair of Physician Advisors at CCLCM, Director of Neurology Clerkship, and Director of the Autonomic Center in the Department of Neuromuscular Medicine at Main Campus here to join us. Dr. Warren and Dr. Wilson, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you. If you would take a minute, both of you, to kind of introduce yourselves, tell us a little bit about, you know, what you do here at the Cleveland Clinic and your path thus far. Sure. I can start. So as you mentioned, I'm the Associate Dean for Student Affairs and Admissions at the Cleveland Clinic Lerner College of Medicine. And what's unique about being in that position now is that I am actually a graduate of the school. I was in the inaugural class of the Cleveland Clinic Lunar College of Medicine. And so for me, I have always supported our trainees at every level, but I have really a soft spot in my heart for our CCLCM students. And I am a medical dermatologist. I enjoy seeing patients with very complex dermatologic diagnoses. I'm here at the main campus. After graduating from school here, I did travel to some other locations for my residency training at Georgetown in DC and then Yale before coming back to the Cleveland Clinic as staff. Outside of my professional career, I'm proud to say I'm a mother of three young kids who keep me busy and proud to be a Clevelander. True Clevelanders boomerang back. So I was born in Cleveland, left and lived on both coasts, but of course came back to Cleveland. Fabulous. And I have to say, I think having been in that inaugural class has to give you a perspective in the role that you have now that would be hard to duplicate any other way. Rob, what about you? Well, I've been in Cleveland Clinic now for about 10 years, and I've always had a role in education through my 20 plus years. I'm now the chair of the physician advisors at the medical school here, which is a very unique role. It's probably not enough time to describe it in the time that we have, but it's mentor, coach, academic advising. And I say it's probably the most privileged role I've had in my career as a physician to be part of the student's journey. And I think they make me better and grow and I think it helps me be a better educator. And maybe I always say that my role as a physician in education is almost like we are guardians or medicine for the next generation. I'm also the director of the neurology clerkship for the medical school here, which really is teaching students about neurology and maybe really about how to navigate patient care, communication, uncertainty, the value of the physical exam skills. I'm not from Cleveland originally. I was raised on the East Coast in Florida. I view Florida as my home state, but I truly have fallen in love with Cleveland and winter. There's a beauty here of the seasons. I'm happy to be here. We definitely have those as we're about to see, I'm afraid. <laughs> so today's podcast focuses on medical student mistreatment and neglect. And Rob, if you would kind of get us started by sort of framing that topic and maybe with some definitions. Mistreatment neglect can be very broad and expansive. I know we're coming here today and I was trying to do some preparation work. And I think the key is 
how we talked about that may be willing to be fluent and open and expansive. You know, one is we have a committee here that meets monthly. And I think even when we do this podcast today, we're going to have to be very willing to maybe be expansive and also be willing to partner up with the people that we're training how we look at this. So I think mistreatment is also in terms of how it impacts people, how it's viewed, and the regard. There's definitely an aspect of generational differences. And neglect is actually ignoring someone and their goals and their achievements and what long-term impact it can be to them. And I think it's much more amorphous. So as the question is being asked, I think all of us have to be very mindful that there's clear-cut examples. You know, we hear about maybe sexual, physical harm, but we have to be very willing as we approach this topic to be willing to talk about what may be viewed as softer or maybe not as overtly accepted concepts as mistreatment neglect. Yeah, I would agree. And I do agree also that generational differences, I, I look at myself and I look at the trainees and I think to myself, I sometimes feel I have my finger on the pulse of things and begin to realize very quickly I'm not even close and I have to regauge what I'm thinking. So, Christine, I, you hear the invisible student mentioned and focusing on neglect and mistreatment. And this is sort of out of some of the data coming from the Surgical Education Journal. And I wonder how you would comment around that. Well, students unfortunately can find themselves in learning environments where they are ignored. It's as if they are not even in the room or engaged in participating in the care of a patient. And this is something that I think previously was not recognized as much, that neglect as a form of mistreatment. But as our services become busier, as the stress level increases in many different areas of medicine and surgery, I can say that I do see that neglect aspect increasing. And that, of course, contributes to students feeling like they're not part of the team, that they really don't have a role on the team, or they perhaps don't have the skills necessary to contribute or the knowledge to contribute. And that impacts their confidence level, their feeling of whether or not they made the right decision in going into medicine. And even it could change their career goals or aspirations. A bad experience on a clerkship can completely change the trajectory of their future. Yeah, I certainly have a sense of that. You know, not here, but in another venue, students were talking about their surgical clerkship. And one said, you know, I don't even know if there was value to me even doing it. I would have been better off had I just been at home and studied. And I thought, wow. And then all of a sudden, the remainder of the group chimed in. Yeah, we feel about the same way. And I think surgery is one of those tough areas because it's changed. Surgery has become very much of it is endoscopic. So you're not at the table holding a retractor, looking into an incision. And so there's a tendency to be up against the wall. I, th I think it's almost harder to train. Would you see that the same way or? I would in some ways. I think it is more difficult. I think it's really time pressures as well to figure out how do I bring the student and incorporate them into the patient care and give them some autonomy, knowing that I then have to come in and repeat what was already done, and I only have 10 minutes to see a patient. And so in that regard, I can see that as our clinical expectations and, and workload is increasing, that perhaps it has become more of a challenge for educators to figure out 
how they can incorporate the student into the regular workflow. And what's the feedback loop for that? When you have students that are on a clerkship, you know, the feedback that the, the professor or the attending physician might get, how does that work? Work on the neurology clerkship, that's a great question because there's supposed to be this loop that students here give feedback on faculty. And as a clerkship director, I know for the neurology, we meet with our students weekly to really see how they're doing, what could be done better, and to really have that interaction because we really ask them to give us feedback in real time. You know, if something's not happening, if they're being neglected, things are not being achieved, there are certain milestones we want to make sure that they're doing, like learning to do a neuro exam. There are certain like core conditions they need to learn and see, like multiple sclerosis, stroke, Parkinson's. If they're not seeing that, we want to know. They have my email, they have my phone number because we have these metrics and we know that with time demands, especially during the COVID phase, when we're still going through things and pressure demands, that a lot of these things might not happen. It's not because of them, or there are a lot of pressures around their teaching environments, that level. And also is happening, I think sometimes, or with the residents and the faculty, things are on them also for their own demands. And we gotta think about that, maybe a student can learn a different way that they maybe not need to do everything in this aspect. There could be opportunity for them to learn. Maybe they just need to do the physical in this one moment. And the next opportunity is learn how to do the med review for the neurologic consultation, for example. Like, tell me how these medications can make someone confused or why they had a seizure. So really partnering up. So I think what we've learned in the neurology clerkship is how to reduce mistreatment and neglect. We have a very high score of not having mistreatment and neglect by really just asking the students how we can do it better and really, really revising it back in real time, really breaking down a lot of conventional models and saying, like how you talked about earlier about some of the old models of teaching and saying what was ineffective. We don't want them home, we want them there. Sure, so it sounds like you're really trying to foster a kind of a bi-directional communication between students and faculty. Oh yeah. Which is a key, and I think, you know, at whatever level of education, if you can really begin to engage individually with faculty, your teacher, from high school on up, there's great value in that. And I think Lerner does a good job at building that from the perspective I have. We've created this culture, and I know one of the other clerkships, ob Gine, these high acute procedure-based areas where emotions are high, the patients have high expectations. Same as our serves, where stroke, where minutes can make a difference of permanent deficits, the students are present. So we set the stage that you know things are gonna be intense, there's pressure on you, the students know what's going to be like. It might be more passive. It's more educational that we know that there's an opportunity where mistreatment neglect can happen. We prepare everybody that the student's more vulnerable. So this reduces things from happening. So we really set the stage and even ob has been doing this work. We acknowledge this can happen in these scenarios. So we prepare in advance this sort of collaboration. And we've created a culture saying we know in medicine, the clinical years that these are vulnerable places. Instead of making talk about mistreatment neglect as taboo, as almost like a quality project. You know, so when things happen, let's just talk about it. How can we make this better for everybody? It's not like a danger zone or you did something wrong. Let's just all grow together. Yeah, and I think there's an opportunity there at the beginning of a clerkship for the attending physician faculty to say to the students just what you've just said that sort of sets the stage for communication back and forth. Even when it comes to 
microaggressions, for example, saying, look, I'm open to hearing about this, and I hope that in the appropriate venue, we can have a conversation around this, that immediately opens the door and sets a playing field, I think, that's important. You know, even so, I think that students are reluctant. You know, we talk about anonymity and so forth, and we hope we have ways to guarantee that. But the common response will be, but the situation is so specific that when they hear about it, they'll know it was me. And it's an area I'm interested in. What do you do to work around that, Christine? That is 100% true. Retaliation is a concern of students. They're great, even in a pass-fail system. And they are looking ahead at their careers, their letters of recommendation, and concerned about raising their voice or drawing attention to the situation or discussing it. In terms of what we do about it, to your point, talking about it as early as we can and as frequently as we can in orientation, in second year, before they go on to clerkships as well, and talk with the faculty the residents and the students about this, because what we're seeing is mistreatment is not just by the faculty members, it's by other trainees in the program too, fellows and residents to other learners. Have as many options for students to report as well, so they can report it anonymously. Of course, it's confidential. So that even if we're unable, I guess I should say, to loop back and talk directly to the student, if it's anonymous, we at least can track it for the department or perhaps an individual, and we can reach out and provide some coaching or training to that faculty member or that resident. Students openly tell us that there are things happening that they know have happened to their classmates, and they have not reported it, and they don't intend to report it because of the fear surrounding this. Yeah, and I would agree. I was looking at some literature from the American Association of Medical Colleges, and they talked about roughly 80% of mistreatment is not reported, and yet about 39% of students report it. So there's a lot more than meets the eye, and I think it perhaps revolves around a lot of that. Do you think that, you know, setting up the stage again at the beginning of clerkship saying, look, these things are usually not purposeful. They're usually based on maybe some implicit bias that we don't recognize. And I think it cuts both ways. The student can feel offended, but the faculty member can also be taken aback thinking, I did not mean that and feel that they're in a bad spot. I mean, that's the work that we do. I'm also, as a physician advisor, that's sort of a lot of the conversations one-on-one with my own students that I have. I have students assigned to me for over five years, and these are the intimate conversations I have with them. But with the clerkship orientation, we discuss this, and in the weekly meetings, to really try to almost think what you're bringing up is demystify it, to try to change that mind space, to talk about mistreatment neglect as, let's bring it forward, let's talk about it, Let's not have it concealed. We'll help you through this. It might not seem like a big deal to you, but it probably is a big deal to you because you're afraid about things like your grade and of rotation, which might go into your dean's letter. You know, and I think also you look at people who become doctors. These are high achievers, perfectionists. People who take care of patients are people pleasers. So that's a big thing a lot of times of this career, nurses, doctors, APPs, psychologists. They don't let people down. So there's a culture of us that will not say things. You know, we conceal, we hold on, and just will not speak up. So it's part of the, the issue. When I meet the students as the chair of the physician advisors, I always say, one of the reasons why that I meet with all of you is one of the reasons why you're here in this seat, 
perfectionism, the overachievement, the eager to please. So it's one of the reasons why I think people don't speak about mistreatment neglect is we just don't want to be a bother also. Yeah. Clearly, I can see that, you know, and you weave into all of this social media. So, you know, there's, I always see it as a tendency to report or play out things in social media that seem really outrageous and things that were really great. But the majority of us are somewhere in the middle. How do you think students reflect on that and thinking, boy, the good stuff isn't happening to me or boy, that's awful. I just know that my colleague and I, for the neurology clerkship, and that we really try just to talk about as much as possible and try to make it a very common conversation. And we, with our clinical cases, we talk about bias, and our patients are treated as bias, so where things will come forward more often. And we thank them and acknowledge it, and it helps. And as we track our mistreatment reports, because that is something we do at the School of Medicine, and we wrote, report back to the School of Medicine community, our hope is actually that over time we'll see an increase in the mistreatment reports, knowing that they are currently underreported. And people might think that's a little strange to say, but we have discussed this as a leadership team. And if people are reporting it more, then they are feeling more empowered to step forward. And students tend to second guess themselves and think, well, maybe this is supposed to happen, or maybe this is me just being overly sensitive. And on the flip side, we have faculty that say, I went through this in my training. This is what made me who I am today and made me such a great physician. Or the students today are just overly sensitive and they have to get a little bit tougher to survive in this profession. And we have to find a way to bring them together. I mean, that builds on that whole concept of healthcare, this generational collision or collaboration. I mean, very few careers have so many generations of boomers, Gen X, millennials, Gen Z coming together where you have very intimate relationships of these different cultural beliefs in one space. And that has to be figured out together, these concepts. It needs to be hard for you to be a good doctor. It might not be accurate, that level. And I think one thing that helps students out too is when the physicians who are older generations share what they've been through also. And they realize, oh, wow, that has happened. And not sharing that I needed to be hard to make me a better doctor. That maybe it, these things made me choose paths that impacted my career choice. Sure. Boy, I can see that. I remember clearly, and I hate to pick on surgery, but you know, I remember getting sent to the library because I couldn't answer a question twice. But at the same time, on the other hand, when we would do rounds, it, this is going to date me for sure, is there was still smoking in the hospital. So at the nurse's station, the, the nurse might have a cigarette dangling from her mouth. There were ashtrays and, and rounds. The chair of surgery smoked. And when we would go to the VIP room, it was always a distinct pleasure to be able to hold his cigarette while he went in to see the patient. So he'd hand you the cigarette and say, hold that upright, Tizano, I want it to burn evenly. And we'd stand in the hallway holding that cigarette, waiting to get back. And you'd look at that as perhaps a microaggression today, but we were proud then, like I got to hold the cigarette. Well, even these terms like microaggression are very confusing to different generations. Yeah, I would agree. And, and I've been involved in a little bit of that work here at the clinic, so I think I have a better feel. But, you know, it's not usually purposeful. It's based on implicit bias. We're wired in such a way that these things occur. If you have that conversation ahead of time, I'm not going to go back there because I think that's really perhaps one of the keys. I think, Rob, you were talking in something I read from you about restorative justice. 
And the idea that this decision-making process where there's an offender, and I hate to use the word offender, where one of these misadventures have occurred and the student are actually brought together, is that something that actually happens? That's a rare phenomena. I think the key is, I think what Christine brought this about is the person who maybe who's done this, often you'll meet with that person and they are often like, I didn't mean that. It's usually that microaggression, a slip and they, I, I wanna work on this. I know in my department, there's been a situation and I, I spoke to this person about a comment that was made and they're like, oh my God, Rob, I never meant that. And I was probably just overexhausted. It was the hard phase of the 2020 pandemic. That was not my intent. And that person was mortified. And to this day, this person comes to me and says like, that I, I still look at you, Rob, and I still think about that and it had an impact on me. And this person's a very good educator. So I, you know, often people don't necessarily come together, but I think a lot of times where like my role will be more the liaison coming back to that's trainee students saying, this is what the impact has. This is what you've done as a lasting impact. You know, knowing that your voice, your word, besides what you've done to help yourself, you may have had this ripple effect long-term generationally. Yeah, I could certainly see that. You know, I look at Lerner at the College of Medicine and I, I think to myself, the leadership has done such an extraordinary job at building trust, which is the platform for teamwork. And, you know, I knew Jim Young pretty well, Bud Isaacson I've gotten to know pretty well. And I, I'm looking at the leadership there. I feel like there's a transparency that I didn't see when I was in training. And Christine, comment on that, because I think that is really the fertile soil for all of this to develop. Yes, I, I think a key point is trust is built. It's not something that we can expect off the bat from our students or from a team. And letting them know early on that we are open to feedback, as hard as it may be to hear sometimes, that we can't work on what we don't know about or have not recognized ourselves within our learning community. And with our assessment system based on feedback and our portfolio system and a growth mindset, I think that really sets the stage for us to be able to have those conversations. Sure, and that willingness, they, they talk about, are we a fearless organization? Can we have this exchange both ways? Do you think we are? Mm -hmm. You know, I feel that we are, and I, I think that's one of the things that makes us unique. So, Rob, are there actual courses for faculty that they can take? Yes. You know, we've been doing the CME and Grand Rounds to the ob guide clerkships. We've been on tour <laughs> since 2020 on Zoom, and we have actually a few coming up. We did it with PEDS, ob guide we're doing the neurology, we've done it for the clerkship retreat. And we've moved the term from mistreatment neglect. So when you ask the question how to define it, it's hard to find. It's almost like professionalism. It's easier to measure it when you don't see it. So we call it more about healthy workplace psychology. And so we've been doing a lot of opportunities for people to come discuss and teach about treatment neglect through that modality. And actually a lot of people are showing up are not the people who already know about it. Some people actually are coming like, you know, I've been a person who maybe has not been ideal. Yeah, self-recognition is a key step, and that speaks to at least beginning to develop an environment where that comes forward. You know, you mentioned OBGYN and that you're partnering with them, and they've had some programs surrounding this. 
And I think one of the things I noticed as an obstetrician gynecologist in training is our male students didn't always get, especially in the office, the kind of exposure that women would get. And so I always tried to make a point to be the one who approached patients. And I always wondered if that was fair, because, you know, when I go in the room and say, you know, we've got this student, he's a male, you know, this is the only way they learn. But I've seen students come to our offices and find out in the week they've been there, they've only done one or two pelvic exams. So, you know, we have to work on things like that. That's not an easy, and we are a teaching organization, but how do you address that and feel comfortable with the patient as well? Where's that line? That's a big area of mistreatment neglect, and it's sort of the next taboo or very controversial where the patient or the patient support people can be the, use the word offender of mistreatment neglect. And you have to sort of look at your own specialty and say where this can happen. You know, in neurology, sometimes people who have compromised thinking and tangential thinking, and you realize where a student in training can be vulnerable to that. We've had situations in neurology with our female trainees, very off-color comments. And one of our residents, it was one of our students, and she reported to me some things as I thank you, that we're gonna deal with this and talk. We dealt with it very clearly, but I think it's realize each of your specialties where those vulnerable areas could be. And then also, you know, where that can happen. Psychiatry's dealt with that very well in their clerkship. That's a very vulnerable area also. So this has been a fabulous conversation. I'm sure there's things I've missed for either of you. There's some things that you'd like to bring forward that we should have talked about and I neglected to. I was just going to add to the previous conversation about expectations and setting expectations of faculty member and the students. And if you have expectations, you need to create that environment that the student can fulfill them. And that then leads to feedback and observation and in the end, their assessment. If they're not given the opportunity to perform a task or a role or a skill, then how can you truly provide meaningful feedback to them? Spot on. That's well said. And I think the other thing, when we've been doing this CME for healthy workplace, we've been studying a lot of literature being studied and published. One was in JAMA about surgery and how we treat each other in the workplace impacts the patient care. So people who may be disbelievers to this idea and think it needs to be hard for the next generation, for them to be good doctors, it might not be really adding up in that direction. So there's been research about surgeons, other nursing other patient care scenarios, how we treat each other is correlating less ideal patient outcomes. Yeah, perhaps it impacts empathy. You know, I could see that in a number of other factors where that would be the case. Well, I'd like to thank you both for what I think was a very stimulating podcast, and I hope our listeners enjoyed it, and we look forward to seeing you again. I thank you both very much. Thank you. Thank you. This concludes this episode of MedEd Thread a Cleveland Clinic Education Institute podcast. Be sure to subscribe to hear new episodes via iTunes, Google Play, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time, thanks for listening to MedEd Thread, and please join us again soon. Music